you've reached the Entertainment Hotline, a chatter podcast. Listen and celebs dial in to chat with Anita Annabelle, chatter.com.au and Media Week's Head of Entertainment. Hi guys, it's Victoria Devine from She's on the Money. I am in my office and I've got like cats on this shelf here. There's a dog down here. Like I've just had a good cup of tea. Like, oh my God, just chill out. I love that for us. This is, this is exactly what I love. I just love just being able to record from home. Fridays are my favorite though, because Fridays are like the day that I block out all of my morning because I, I write my age in Sydney morning herald, um, stuff on this day. So I like block the whole morning out and then I like always make myself a nice breakfast. I procrastinate a lot and then I get it done because it has to be submitted by lunch. <laughs> I'm so, this is going to be so great because I, I just want to let you know a uh, little bit of background on me. Money and I are not friends. I am terrible <laughs> at keeping it. I'm terrible at saving it. I am outwardly saying my best friend actually looks after all of my money. And she I love this. That's, that's very financially responsible. Yeah, she she doesn't think I'm financially responsible, but she's she's not like, of you to let her do that. Oh, you it have is to let her do. No, that. no, no, it is. I know, and that's why. But it's amazing. So she looks after all my accounts, and she pays me pocket money, and that's all I can Stunning. do. So. Stunning. So. If it works, I'm so it works. Glad you like that. I'm so glad you like that. So just this is going to be so interesting for me. So I'm really, really keen to talk about She's on the Money. But before we kind of go into everything that that the new rebranding of the podcast is, can you give me the elevator pitch on She's the Money? I know it's the number one finance podcast in the country, but for anyone who hasn't heard it, what is She's on the Money? Honestly, it was um, an accident, (laughs) but she's on the money, I suppose, comes from a place of wanting everybody to have access to financial literacy because I think that everybody deserves that. And so I guess that's where it comes from. That's where it starts. We call ourselves the podcast for millennials who want financial freedom. And I think that, you know, really helping our community understand that financial freedom isn't becoming a millionaire. It's actually just about even sometimes having that you know, based understanding of money. So you know what an emergency fund is and you know how to pay your bills properly and you know that, you know, you can save and you can invest. So I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's quite soft in in the way that it's come together. But now, and this is why we're talking, it's kind of grown into something a lot bigger and we kind of have started pivoting more into investing content, small business content and helping women just achieve whatever they want with the tools that, um, you know, they should have been given in school. I am so glad you said with the tools we should have been given in school because that is one thing, apart from a Dolomite account, when we were in 1992 when I set that up, which I have no idea whatever happened to that. Research even tells us that Dolomites did absolutely nothing Nothing. for financial literacy across the country. Schooling, you should be taught these life skills. Let's talk about that because I was going to bring it up later, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we should educate kids in school about money. Well, money is something that we all have exposure to, whether we like it or not, whether your parents talk about it at the dinner table or they refuse to, like money is something that essentially makes the world go round. And I think that we all need to have a base understanding of it. Your money story actually starts as young as seven. I would argue it's younger, but that's, you know, what research tells us is seven years old, you're starting to really worry about 
what money and financial pressures are being put on your parents or your guardians, right? So you might see it in, you know, small kids who have a school excursion coming up and mum has to sign the form and send you with some cash. And the kids who don't have any financial pressures run home and wave the piece of paper in front of their mum and they're like, mum, we're going to the zoo. And then the kids who kind of know mum and dad struggle with money might leave it in the bottom of their school bag for a little bit longer because they just feel a bit guilty. And they don't know why, but they feel a bit they feel a little bit overwhelmed by asking their parents for something that they know might not be financially possible. So I think that money stories start so young. And money stories are something that we need to understand. But this is where it's not just sitting down and going, all right, Anita, let's actually just teach people how to use a bank uh, in grade nine. Great idea. It's actually these underlying conversations that start really early. And it might just be about how they feel about money, how they transact with money, what money can achieve, that money doesn't define who you are as a person, but rather money just enables you to achieve things. And some people have more, some people have less, that doesn't make them any different. Mm -hmm. So I think that these are the conversations that that in primary education we should be having, obviously teaching them really cool things that I think are cool, like tax. Kids can understand a tax system. Like you can implement these things with pocket money. And when I have kids, I absolutely will be doing this. I'll be like, all right, babe, you have $10 a week pocket money. And you know what? $3 of that goes to family tax. And at the end of every quarter, we're going to have a good discussion about what we do with that family tax and how we spend it so that I'll sit down with my kids one day and go, okay, cool. We have, you know, $50 of family tax sitting here. As a family, what do you think we should be spending this on? And this is where kids get to be involved in decision-making, but you don't have to go, hey, little friend, this is how much the mortgage costs. So I think that these conversations can start really early. And then obviously, as you get closer to that 13, 14-year-old age where they are thinking about getting their first jobs, we should be talking about superannuation. We should be giving them concepts of investing and how they work not necessarily because a 13-year-old is going to become a millionaire and have a full-time job, but these are when these things start to impact us. But I remember at school, I was doing trigonometry, not doing anything to do with tax, not doing anything to do with superannuation. At, at the time, I had no financial literacy on that at all because it just wasn't talked about. Mm. It's not because we're not smart enough to comprehend it. It's just because it's not part of the curriculum. Yeah, right. And that is, it's such a big concern. I mean, I'm 37 and I don't have any financial literacy, hence why my story at the beginning of this. I can give it all to you. That's fine. I know. I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to be best friends. We're going to be best money friends. But it's true though, because it's so difficult when you, if you didn't have a, a, you know, a parental unit who kind of instilled that in you from a young age for what, for various reasons, it does go overflow into your adult life and you do struggle. There are people who really struggle with saving and struggle with knowing how to spend their money. And I think one thing that's really interesting to me is that you you kind of touched on this is that money, it's not the be all and end all in terms of who's better than who. It's that money gives you more opportunity. Money enables you to have a level of freedom that others don't have. 
And I think that that's where the conversations from, I guess, my perspective start. That's what I want to be talking to people about because I think there's this concept when we start talking about investing that we go immediately, oh my gosh, no, I'm not smart enough for that. I don't understand it. And the same thing is true if you asked me to go to a different country and speak a different language. Like we, you know, take for granted the fact that, you know, hey, let's go, Anita, we're going on a holiday. We're going to go to Greece. Do you want to learn to speak Greek? with me. You're not going to start by picking up a Greek book and starting to read it and then wondering why it's not making sense. Mm. You're going to start with, hi, hello, my name's Victoria. And then you know (laughs) what? Tomorrow I'm going to forget how that was said. I'm going to not understand it at all. It's going to take weeks. I'm going to sound like an absolute spud. But like (laughs) we know with a language that you have to start at the foundation, whereas money is identical. You can't just start at the most complex topic and go, oh my gosh, all my friends at brunch were talking about the difference between an ETF and a managed fund and this whole money thing is too much for me. When you don't understand the basis, you don't understand the basics, like you're not putting yourself in the best possible position. And you know what that leads to? That leads to people thinking that they're inherently bad with money because they just assume that because they don't get the complex topics, they must be silly. They must. It must not just be for them. When in reality, I promise there are sillier people doing better things with their money There are sillier people doing better things with money than we ever could. Yeah, totally. It's actually really funny. It depends on like where I used to work at Pixie Photo. This is such a long time ago. And I was like 24 years old. I remember that, like in the shopping center. I know. Yeah, I was in a Kmart. Hilarious. But I used to work in the Pixie Photo. I'd actually find that the lower socioeconomic families would spend more money on photographs than the ones who earned more money because it's kind of the way that they, what they would spend their money on would be family, whereas people in higher socioeconomic, you know, families would often kind of spend it on houses or bigger purchases or holidays. So it was really, really interesting to me. I always find it super interesting watching people's spending habits because they're often a reflection, as you've said, of their values, but also just of what they've been taught. So, you know, for someone that has a higher income, spending money on a photo package might actually be, you know, a bit frivolous. They're like, I have heaps of photos. I don't need lots of these. Whereas for a family who might not have access to those things, that's one of the biggest investments that they'll make. They're like, no, 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 that's going to go in the front hall of my house. That's going to be, you know, the photo that we have for the next 15 years. Whereas what you're probably not looking into is the fact that the wealthier family are doing that annually and the not so wealthy family, they're doing that once and that's their big splurge item and that just makes sense for them. So, I find it so interesting because I I think that people immediately assume, oh, Victoria Devine, far out. She's terrifying. She's so good with money. And that's where I really like to kind of reframe it and go, all right, Anita, do you know that when I started university, I graduated, I got my first job. I thought I was a bowler. I was earning $50,000 as a package. So we all know that's more like 43,000 $43, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so very, very attractive, but that was the most amount of money I'd earned in my entire life. And then I proceeded to go and get myself into $44,000 worth of personal debt because I was living way beyond my means. There was things that I wanted and needed, and I just didn't have any level of financial literacy. Like I had graduated from two psychology degrees. I'd gone into doing my MBA. I thought that like, 
you know, actually, once you get close to 40, you just become financially free, right? Like if you have a corporate job, it is smooth sailing. No. And so I learned very quickly that that's not the case. And I think that it's so important for me to go, no, 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 I know you because I am you. Like I have been there and now I just have all the tools and resources and I think it's my job to share them. And that is so cool because like it's actually making me really excited to talk to you because it's like, oh, all of these tips and tricks that you can kind of, that you give on Sheeds the money. But I'm curious, you said that when you started at uni, you were living beyond your means. And I think a lot of people do that, especially this millenn- us millennials, we we all did that. I also got myself into a, like thousands and thousands oh, of Oh, twins. I know. When you said it, I was like, I did that too. I got my, I got a credit card. I mean, the bank gave me a credit card when I was, was 18 royal years commission, old. Though. When I did that, it was pre-royal commission. Yeah, and I remember going down to the bank and being like, oh, there's this holiday I want to go on. I need to buy a car. Like there's a few things. Can yeah. we just do like one bigger personal loan? So for me, it wasn't even something that spiraled out of control. I just went whole hog. I just thought that's fine. And they gave I- it to you. <laughs> and they gave it to me. And I remember the loan was more than my take-home salary. <gasps> Oh my God. So then before that, did you learn about money through your family or how did you, before you kind of decided to go down this path, how did you learn about money? So how did you learn about money? It's it's an interesting question because you would assume that once I tell you (laughs) what my parents do, (laughs) um, you'd be like, she must be so financially literate. (laughs) Like my mom was a coroner um, and my dad was an accountant. So like one really spicy job, one really normal job. And my dad used to sit us down and teach us all of our maths. Like I remember, and I wrote this in the acknowledgements of my first book. I'm like, low key, sorry, dad, that we spent so long screaming at each other at the dining table, overtimes tables. Uh, ha ha, still don't know them all. <laughs> um, I still sing songs to do timetables. I have to sing songs in my head to remember <laughs> the times tables. Like that's who I am as a person. And I think this is so important for people to know because sometimes when it comes to money, you see people and you put them on a pedestal and go, oh, maybe she's on the money isn't for me because, you know, they're smart women doing smart things with money and I'm actually bad at money. They might judge me for that. Mm-hmm. Nah, friend, we've all been there. Like, I'm pretty sure my entire team, when we all sat down, we're like, oh, actually, we've all been in really significant personal debt. Ah, shit. Like, that's not that good. But we're all in a better financial position now. Like, we've gone through it. We've learned from it. And I think we learned so much more. But I didn't ever absorb anything that my dad taught me. Like, he would tell me to save 5% of my income. Like I remember getting my first job and him being like, look, Victoria, if you start small and you start now, like save 5% of your income, pretend it didn't even exist. And then over time you can increase that. Did I listen? Absolutely no. not. I think Absolutely we all not. had that advice. I don't think anyone listened. Well, maybe Nobody some people listened. did. My best it's, friend did, but. It's, yeah, she's a genius though. She is a genius. Unrelatable <laughs> content. But it's one of those things that, you know, I did have access to this. I did have, you know, a dad who was relatively financially literate and wanted to share that with me, but I wasn't in the right mind to learn. Mm -hmm. I think for me and my money story, I actually had to get into debt. I had to be stressed about money. I had to lose all of the sleep I lost so that then I valued it because I just didn't. Not because Mm -hmm. I came from a wealthy family, like we were very, very middle class, very normal, nothing too exciting about that. And 
yeah, I think that there's this idea that maybe I came from money or maybe, you know, she's on the money is built on the fact that we're just so smart. No, 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 I had access to it. And I genuinely don't believe, I genuinely believe that people only absorb information when they're ready for it. Oh, 100%. Like how many times has your mum been like, I've been telling you that for years, Anita. Why didn't you listen to me? Because you're wrong, mum. You're just yeah, wrong. Always. <laughs> and then then they're right and you're like, oh, oops. Yeah, but when and you just forget that they even suggested that. I know. It's always about putting a jumper on when you go out, though. I was <laughs> about to use that as an example. Always take an umbrella. Yeah, always, always take like, an no, umbrella. Are you wearing a jacket? I'm- I literally, if I go out and I show mum my outfit, like I'll send her a photo, I'm always like... <laughs> I'm always like, yes, mum, I'm taking a jacket. <laughs> yeah, it's so important. It's so important. But where was she wrong? Did she stutter? Absolutely <laughs> not. Did she stutter? <laughs> no, she didn't. I that love woman never that. missed a beat. <laughs> no, I know. She really does know all. But I mean, this is this is something that I love about the podcast is that you are, you. I, I want to get this right. So I read in an interview that you said you were passionate about every millennial having a healthy relationship with money and caring about and planning for their financial future. Yeah, that Millenni- sounds like something I would have said. Yep. It's amazing. It's very smart. Very smart. But why is it millennials in particular? Do you think that, are you targeting us for a reason? Because you're obviously a millennial. Yeah, I'm just personally attacking all millennials because we're useless with money. No, (laughs) No, I think it it honestly started out because I guess rewinding back, I didn't start She's on the Money thinking it would be a business. I started She's on the Money because it was actually a workshop and a way of me getting clients as a financial advisor way back when I had my own practice. So I used to run these little lunch and learns and, you know, She's on the Money was the name of my lunch and learn. And I wanted all of these women to come and learn. And it kind of manifested from me thinking that maybe my girlfriends were really sick of hearing about financial literacy at brunch every week. I'd be like, all right, guys, so this week I've learned this thing. Do you know about super? Let's, <laughs> let's talk about this because at that point in time, I was like, it's 9.5% of your salary. Like that's lit. Anyway, all of this kind of like transitioned over to me doing these financial literacy workshops. And yeah, she's on the money kind of has come from that position of me. Just, I want to care about people, but I feel like we've targeted millennials because I know you, because I am mm-hmm. you, because it's really relatable in saying that. A lot of our like demographic is really spread. We have lots of babies in the community, like people in their late teens, early 20s, all the way up to my favorite. This is my favorite. When women in their 60s and 70s message us and they're like, oh, I just don't think, I know this content's not for me. And I'm like, it absolutely is. But um, I just want to let you know that I'm 65 and I now have my first emergency fund. And I'm like, get it, queen. Get it. Like, is that not the best thing in the entire world? I'm really curious, though. I mean, millennials, we do seem to not have a grasp like our parents did. Do you know why that is, like the boomer generation? The entire world has changed. I think we look at our parents and the, I guess, financial advice that they could or couldn't give us and go, well, that's unrelatable. So when I was growing up um, and when you were growing up, it, there was a, probably a little bit more financial pressure than there was in the like 50s and 60s. But like in the 80s and 90s, it was still pretty normal to have a stay-at-home parent, a parent that worked full-time, a mortgage that was able to be paid by one single income. Mm. You know, you might have been a middle-class family. So international holidays weren't a thing, but you definitely went every second year up to Queensland and you did the the theme parks. 
And Are you in my family? Yeah, I think so. And like we drove, right? And like my sister and I ended up having to have a cardboard separator in between us because we just fought the whole time. I also really have a good. sister who I fight with. Are we the same person? Yeah, I think we are. you're financially literate and I'm not. <laughs> you'll get there. You'll get there. Give me six months. But it's it's one of those things where that was really normal to have a mum that didn't work, a parent that, you know, went to work and earned a single income and that was fine. Mm. That is so not financially feasible anymore. So I think a lot of millennials have just thrown this idea of what their parents had out the window and a lot of us go, why bother? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I can't achieve it. I'm just going to YOLO my life away. Like, you know, I have a really beautiful lifestyle. Yes, like I don't know what I'm going to do for retirement, but if I stick my head in the sand, I can still go out for espresso martinis every Friday with the girls. I can have this beautiful work-life balance. You know, I might not be ready to have kids yet, and I don't know when that's going to happen. And it's all fine because you have a really nice lifestyle now. And I think Mm. that because in a world where things are so much more accessible, right? Like we have Uber Eats, we have Uber, everything is at our fingertips. We kind of don't think about the future so much because what's going to go wrong? It's so easy. If you can't make it happen, you can get an app for that. And I think that nowadays it's just so easy to exist without worrying about the future. Whereas historically, we, we didn't have that. We didn't have that level of, I guess, technological freedom. And Mm. now we do. And we're also a bit disheartened because our parents are in homes that they say they bought for $25,000 that are worth more than a million. And you're like, well, that's never going to happen for me because I actually need $200,000 to even get the deposit for the same house my parents have. It's just, it feels overwhelming. And when things are overwhelming, people tap out. And I think that that's what a lot of millennials do. We just go... This is too hard. This is not going to be the lifestyle I want. We're also not willing to compromise. Like we don't want to compromise on our values. Like we want to have our cake and eat it too. But what we, we forget is that, yes, we can actually have it all, but we can't have it all at once. We actually need a plan and some level of balance because without compromise, there's not success. Yeah. And the, we are the FOMO generation. You're so right about that. Like if, if you're at home saving, you're not out doing. And it's visible. Sense. It's so visible, yeah, right? So like because it's on if, socials. It's if on, your friends you know? go out, you know where they are, you know what they've done. You're probably on Snapchat halfway through the night with them. You know what they've drunk, where they've been, who they're talking to. And instead of just going, oh, did you have a good night the next day? And they go, yeah, yeah, it was all good. That's changed to visible signs of you missing out. Yeah. And we don't deal with that well as human beings. We're social creatures. Absolutely. Our generation, I feel like we, it's funny because it's like in, like in the rest of the, the generations, I guess you do have the the people who are making a lot of money, but also you have people who are not making a lot of money still. Like even in my late 30s, you know, I'm not making anywhere near as probably where I should be or, you know, I'm on half of what my flatmate is. You know, and, it, and, it's, and it's one of those things where you've probably made that choice consciously so that you can have the lifestyle and the work that you want to do. Whereas you know very well, I could go and earn double tomorrow, but I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be enjoying it. I wouldn't be thriving in the way that I am now. So I think that we make compromises. Whereas historically, you know, I know if you'd offered someone in my parents' generation, hey, if you go do this other job, you'll earn double. They're like, great, that's for my family. Like there's such a level of compromise they were willing to take that we go, actually, 
And especially because I think we, we're able to see it so visibly now, we go, actually, I don't want that compromise. You know, my parents are 60, 70 now, and they are in a position where they've missed out on a lot and they're not necessarily in the best financial position ever. And you just go, well, maybe they should have yellowed a bit more. <laughs> like yeah. maybe they should have enjoyed the journey instead of just the destination because now the destination isn't as sexy as they thought it might be. My mum was um, it was a single mum, so it was always very difficult for us, like always. It wasn't always difficult for her when she was married, you know, um, but but we've, we've come from a single-income family and I'm actually really interested to hear what you have to think, what you think about this, but do you think that the way that we perceive money, so not necessarily a learning, but the way that we perceive money and hold on to money is a direct reflection on of how our parents view money? 100,000%. Like, absolutely. And that's where when it comes to your money story, you really need to understand where you've come from, but then also where you want to go. But you need to understand that there is a difference between your beliefs and your values. So your values around money could be like, I want to be rich. I want to be able to, you know, invest. I want to do all these other things. I want to buy my first home. I want to A, B, C, D, and E. But then if you grew up in, you know, good example, single income family, your underlying beliefs might be money is hard to come by. When money comes by, you just squirrel it away and save it. And we have to do that. And investing is, yeah, or spend it because because that's a reflection of you feeling like you missed out when you were younger. A lot of us are spending a lot of money when we're older if we grew up in circumstances where we feel like we we were at a loss. So we, you know, make up for it. We're like, well, I didn't get this when I was younger and now I can have it. How great. I'm going to look after myself. And that's not necessarily bad. We just need to understand it. And if your beliefs are working in direct opposite directions to your values and what you want to create, you're going to think that you're getting nowhere. You're going to look back and be like, oh my gosh, in the last 10 years, I've achieved absolutely nothing. I feel like trash, like I can't believe this. But the reality of it is as much as you said you wanted to buy your first home, we weren't making progress towards it because our belief about money was stumping us. Our belief about money was stopping us from achieving the things that we deserve to achieve. So we need to understand this. And yes, they do usually come from our parents. Wow. And the... Best thing about money stories, I suppose, is as much as we can't change them, we can reinvent them and we can put ourselves back in the driver's seat and go, actually, you know what? I want to change this. How do I change this? What do I need to do? What kind of like budget and cash flow structure do I need to implement so that all of this makes sense and all of this actually pushes me towards achieving my goals? And it's, it's kind of like we need to look at our budgets. And I always use espresso martinis as a really good example because like 22, 23-year-old Victoria loved a good espresso. <laughs> so it's funny because like had you asked me at 22, 23, you'd be like, Victoria, what are your values around money? What do you want to achieve? And I'd be like, oh, I really want to do some more travel. I want to buy my own home. I want to do it without a man. Like I want to buy like an apartment or something. Genuinely, those were my goals. But then if you'd looked at my budget, you would have been like, V, you say you want to travel and you want to buy a first home, but like right now your values look a lot like Uber Eats and a lot like espresso martinis because that's what you're spending the most money on. So you're not saving towards a home. You're not saving towards travel. Are these really your goals? Mm. And I go, yeah, no, they definitely are my goals. But what was happening is my beliefs around money and, you know, the values from everyone around me were starting to impact the way that my goals were being achieved. 
I never achieved that. I never ended up buying a property on my own without a partner. I never ended up traveling in the way that I wanted to travel as much as I have definitely done some now. It wasn't what I wanted it to be, you know, when I'm 22. I regret nothing. I don't want to change anything. But I think it's so important to acknowledge the fact that as much as I could say unequivocally, I want to own property so bad, like I want my own apartment, I really want the sex in the city vibe, it was never going to happen because I wasn't working towards it because I didn't believe I could actually do it. So as much as I wanted it, I just was like, no point working towards it because like I'm never going to do it. Wow. How did that change for you though? In what uh, yeah. moment? Yeah, what was the Not moment? being able to sleep. Not being able to sleep because of um, personal debt. Like I remember um, I was living in a share house in Hawthorne and I couldn't sleep most nights because I would just stress about money and I would stress. And also no one in my house knew that I was in debt because obviously that was a secret because why would you tell anybody that you're in debt at that point in my life? I was like, that's so embarrassing. When in reality, um, debt is just a reflection of the fact that you spent more than you earned. Full stop, end of story. Like it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't change anything. It just means you spent more than you earned. Let's move on. Yeah. So I just remember being really, really worried because my rent each month was $950. Wouldn't it be nice if it could still be the same? My God. A month. Yeah, a month. Because I was in like a share house, lots of people. Oh, were yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Like, I was like, God, that's a lot. But then I just realized it was no, a month. no, no, no. Yeah, 950 yeah. a month is pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's um, amazing. But my, but my debt repayment was $883 a month. And oh so. Oh, God. On my little $43,000, $44,000 salary, because at that time I think I'd had a pay rise, big dog, um, <laughs> I was left with basically nothing at the end of each month. I couldn't save. I couldn't invest. Investing wasn't even something I fully comprehended at that point in my life anyway, so it doesn't matter. But I just remember being like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how to get out of this debt because I have to pay it back. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent and all my bills and, you know, do all these things that my friends are doing. And espresso martinis were like 20 bucks a pop every single time. And obviously, I'm not going to stop at one because I had no self-control. Um, so, it's one of those things that, yeah, it just it really clicked for me that I needed to learn a bit more about my own financial literacy and what I could do. And at the time in my corporate job, I was working with a financial advisor as in the capacity of like organizational psychology. And I just thought, maybe I'll ask him some questions. And, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up working for him. I ended up starting a business with him. I ended up, you know, now taking it out 100% on my own and having my own financial advice practice. And then I sold that. And now we have a big mortgage broking practice and, you know, she's on the money. And so, yeah, it just, that was a very long story cut short, but it kind of just compounded from there. And I think that it compounded because I learned that I could do it. And then I wanted all my friends to have that same financial literacy. And it was like a fire within me that I just wanted to share it more and more and more. And I remember the day I was like, do you know what? I'm going to start a Facebook group. And so I started this Facebook group called She's on the Money. And all the people that would go to those workshops I mentioned, I'd invite all of them to come and just like talk about money. And because it wasn't that much of an open conversation at that point in time, um, I obviously had a fake Instagram or sorry, I had a fake uh, Facebook account that I would comment on my own posts with to be like, wow, that's so interesting, Victoria. That's crazy. Didn't even know that. That's so nice. Wow, you're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> um, I don't use that now, just so you know. Um, 
But that's kind of how that Facebook started. And to be honest, that little fake profile, it really helped people to see that, oh, oh, that's really relatable. And other people would chime in and I'd be like, oh, that's cool. And then I just, it started compounding. People would message me and be like, hey, V, my sister didn't go to one of your workshops, but I think this could be really cool for her to learn from. Can I add her? And I'd be like, of course, the more the merrier. And then it hit 1,700 people. And I just remember thinking, so as a financial advisor at that point in time, if you had 170 clients, you were a good financial advisor. Like you're a baller, right? And I just thought, if I could convert even one or or 10% of this audience, I'd have a whole new practice. Like I'd have a whole new business. Like that's so much money. Like I don't even need, you know, a little bit, like 1,700 people. Like, and I just remember thinking about them all being in the one room. I'm like, they wouldn't even fit in this room. Like that's so many people. And so on that day I said to them, Hey, like I posted, like, what do you want next? Like, you know, how do we, you know, help you learn the best? And they said, YouTube videos, like, please do videos on, on like teaching us how to do, you know, money. I was like, haha, absolutely not. I mean, it sounds hypocritical now because like, I feel like if you give me a media opportunity, I'm there with bells on. But <laughs> at the time I was like, video. Heck no, absolutely not. That's disgusting. Uh, how about a podcast? Cause all it is, is my voice. And so I thought we'll do a podcast. We'll do 12 episodes and those 12 episodes will be it. And then in the future, what will happen is, you know, if people then ask money questions, I'll be like, I did these 12 episodes. That's your base level of financial literacy. You can go and visit those. You can re-listen to them. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. We are done here. Cause I didn't think that podcasting was a business, right? Definitely not a business. And yeah, so I guess, again, another long story cut short, that Facebook group now has, what, 275,000 people in it. Um, They have nearly 3 million interactions each and every single month. I had to hire a full-time person to manage the Facebook group. Our podcast has 1.6 million listeners every single month, and we are now past 500 episodes of the podcast, and we drop three a week at a minimum. And yeah, it's kind of just grown into a multi-million dollar business that we just didn't see coming. So I'm not mad because of the impact we have, but I don't think that if I had set out to create that, I ever could have because, you know, it didn't come from a position where we thought, oh, we can make money from this because it was never about making money for me. It was actually all about just having this outlet because financial advice felt really restrictive. It didn't feel like people could access it. And I just thought, if I can give this to people, maybe one day they would convert into being my clients as a financial advisor. And now I'm not even a financial advisor, so go figure. My jaw is on the floor. (laughs) It's It's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. A story that I have. That is that is a story if I ever heard one. That is insanity. It's crazy. It's crazy. It definitely keeps us busy. But also, it's more. Do you know what I loved about hearing that story? It's the passion. It's not. Oh, even, I'm wildly passionate about. I don't even know why. Like I know why, but no, people are like, "How do amazing. I channel the same passion into my business?" And I'm like, "I don't know." You don't. But it's not even. Do you know what's really interesting? And you've said this a few times, like it's not about the money. It's literally about helping the other people get to where you have or to to educate. And I think that is just, that is why this is such a wildly successful podcast. 
now you're rebranding. Yeah, I mean, we about that. Like, why is that? Uh, the glow up, I've, I've been yeah, told. The glow it's up. It's definitely a glow up. Um, and I'll be really honest with you. Um, <laughs> so, so when she's on the money started, as I said, never about the money. And it was never about the money. I think a lot of people say that, but low key, they're like, it kind of is because it's their main business. It was never about the money for me because it was you know, I have my financial advice business. And to be honest, I was doing really well. Like it was Mm -hmm. growing really nicely. It was tracking along. And like, that's where I got my salary from. Like it was working. So this was like a passion project on the side. Um, And when you have a passion project, you don't spend that much money on it. Right. So um, this is horrifically embarrassing because any small business owner would be like, why didn't you just use Canva? And I'd be like, well, I didn't know it existed. Did I? Um, so love I, Canva. Shout out to Canva. Shout out to Canva. Not SponCon at all, but I no, I live my life. I'm on obsessed. Canva. Yeah, um, but I didn't know it existed yet. Right when I was starting, she's on the money, and so I used Microsoft PowerPoint, and I <laughs> went and found a peach color I liked and filled the page with the peach color, and then I downloaded a couple of different fonts and uh, put them on the screen in she's on the money. Um, I used the cutout tool to cut me out and put a white background around (laughs) it. And then I um, found a picture of a $2 coin and a a ficus tree um, just on Google. And I cut those out too. And I stuck them on my little PowerPoint. And then my friend, I took a screenshot and that was our logo for the last four and a half years. Um, So when I say that we needed a glow up, it was because we we didn't have a real brand. We just had some stuff Victoria made on a Microsoft PowerPoint. And my team were like, you can't tell people that. And I was like, well, I'm going to because I think it's hilarious. And so, you know, as time went on, like we were doing absolutely everything ourselves and we started taking on sponsorship and, you know, working with clients and we'd been approached by a heap of different like networks. And I was like, should we be joining a network? Shouldn't we? And like, I just found that decision really hard because I never saw She's on the Money as a commercial venture. Anyway, I ended up joining ARN. I adore them. Um, and we are, we're getting on board with ARN <laughs> and some of their um, designers emailed me. And they're like, Hey, like we're updating our media kits. Can you send through your logos? And I send through this like dodgy um, JPEG file <laughs> and they're like, Hey, can we have the like, vectors or whatever it is or like the photoshop files and i was like can i just send you the powerpoint and they're like what (laughs) um so that they ended up recreating it for me like they just replicated what we had in photoshop and made it in an actual file so that it could actually yeah so that it could actually be used and distributed throughout the media (laughs) um and so yeah, like I I still love that brand. I think it's just reflective of where we were and what it was. But things like, you know, accessibility weren't taken into consideration because I didn't know there were things. So peach mm. and white were often very hard for our readers who couldn't see or had, had vision impairments, couldn't see it properly. And so like on our website, it was really challenging for people to sometimes like read through things. So over time, I would change everything to high contrast, like a black and a white, and it would make sense. However, you know, it really didn't feel like it was on brand because we were doing it for accessibility. Mm. And, you know, over time, those things start to like add up and your brand starts to slip a little bit in terms of its visuals. And, you know, having having those 
Um, I can send you the uh, free fonts I used, but having those free fonts, I was just like, I want something a bit more custom. I want something us. And, you know, as we're growing up and our community are going from being, you know, getting out of debt and budgeting and they still are, but we're now talking about like punchier topics like investing and financial freedom and small businesses. I just, I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I think it's time that we invested in, you know, rebranding, not too far from who we were, but I want punchier colors. I want something that just feels a lot more 2023, a little bit more grown up, but a little bit more, you know, stands out in a feed of different podcasts because podcast is like podcasting is getting more and more competitive. And I think that we still have to have that edge. We can't, we can't just rely on a PowerPoint presentation as our logo <laughs> anymore. So that was disappointing. Guess, disappointing to say that because obviously we love a PowerPoint presentation. Um, but yes, and our team, um, do we do monthly PowerPoint presentations? Good. Um, I'm glad you're on, keeping that. That's yep, very on our, theme, on brand. We, very we do it. Yep, they're not even work presentations. It's just like a recap of what happened that month. Mm-hmm. Like how many coffees was Victoria spotted spilling on herself and stuff like that, which is really fun. But I just think it's so important to kind of keep up with the times. Like we needed a more user-friendly website. Like the website that I had made, I had made. Did um, you make you made I, it? Right? I did everything. Victoria did- Divine is so DIY. I love it. But like, I'm not going to go spend even five grand on a website when the business at that point, like the first season of She's on the Money in terms of production cost me about $25,000 out of pocket because I had hired a producer like externally. I had paid them to edit stuff. I paid my co-host. I paid everybody because I just thought over time this might become, you know, this hopefully was an investment into the marketing of my business, Zella. And I just thought that's a really good idea. That makes a lot of sense. But in reality, like I look back on that and go, it was great investment, but Victoria, it was not for Zella, was it? Like, and I didn't know that. But once you've spent that amount of money and you're just like, oh my gosh, I didn't want to spend anymore. Like I set all of our socials up. I set our website up, anything that needed to be done online. I had done. And, you know, it's still kind of true because I am controlling. Um, I still have my fingers on absolutely everything in the business. Like, honestly, this is the first time I have ever let anybody else write copy for my business. (laughs) And the girls at Bossy Copy did the best job, but like, I didn't write anything on our website. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Like, this is so much better than anything I could have ever written about us. But yeah, it's, it's, slow steps in the right direction to kind of free us up to be more successful. And I mean, you know, I'm not shy about what we're doing or, you know, how it works because I think ultimately we're having a really good impact on women and financial literacy and at our core we are good and we are doing good and everything we do is for for the right reasons. But now because, you know, the Australian industry is so small, we do also want to chase an international audience and we do want to, you know, go after making sure that, you know, financial literacy is universal. So why wouldn't our information on budgets and cash flow be relevant in the US, in the UK, in Canada? So I think, you know, that's where we're at and we kind of needed that glow up to be able to step up. I can't believe I haven't asked this yet in this whole conversation. Why women? Ah, oh, because we're the ones that always always don't have a seat at the table. 
Like, and when we do have a seat at the table, it's because we dragged it up there ourselves and it's kind of rickety and it doesn't really work. And we're trying to sit at the table and be taken seriously. And then our chair freaking falls over. So I think it's so important that women have financial literacy. There are men in our community. There are lots of different people in our community and they are all welcome. I think importantly, you know, our language is actually we are the podcast for millennials and people who want financial freedom and the she and she's on the money is me. Like we yeah. don't just talk to women. Like our books are written in this way and our content is written in this way where we always address people as friends. We don't address them as women. I know that I am passionate about female financial literacy, but if anyone resonates with our content, they are welcome. However, we know that women in general are far far further behind the eight wall than men. And I think that if we can help them catch up, there's nothing bad in our community that could happen if women are more financially literate. Yeah. Wow. This has been amazing. I don't, I don't, I want to keep going. (laughs) I want to keep talking. Um, I do, to finish up, I do want to get you to give me three top line tips on how someone can change their financial freedom right this second. I'm really fluffy. So it is really about that first thing, that money story. So the first thing you can do is actually understand where you've come from, understand where you're going and give yourself the grace of letting it all go. Like you are not a bad person because you don't understand how to manage money. You are not a failure because you have personal debt. You are not, you know, behind the eight ball. You're actually exactly where you need to be. And you're you're there because unfortunately, you probably need to learn from the situation that you're in. And it might not feel that great, but I promise you at some point you'll look back and be like, as much as it was awful, I'm glad I went through that because I value where I am now. Mm -hmm. So if we can reflect on where we've come from and take away the judgment from ourselves, we just kind of need to pull our heads out of the sand and go, well, where am I actually? What do I want to achieve? And, you know, that tip is not necessarily financial, but I promise the second you start caring about it, everything else starts to fall into place. The second thing I would say is an emergency fund and a banking system. So if you don't have access to an emergency fund, that's okay. In fact, most Australians don't have access to $500 if an emergency popped up. So the idea of an emergency fund is actually a luxury. So if you could create an emergency fund for yourself, so if something ever popped up, you go, oh my gosh, I've actually got the cash for that. It might be a vet appointment that you didn't see coming because your cat recently swallowed a hair tie. (sighs) relatable Um, and you need to get it out (laughs) and then it's at midnight so it's a $400 fee for the emergency vet and then your cat looks at you like why are we here mum I don't understand because you squalid my hair tie (laughs) Um, he didn't care so it could be that it could be you know your rego popped up and you forgot to budget for it but the money's now sitting over to the side so we don't have to go into debt for it i think it's really powerful having doesn't matter if it's 50 bucks or 20 bucks to the side that's money you didn't have before that will serve future you so having that and really understanding what's going in and out of your bank account is going to help you and then if you're like the i don't want finance tips you know this economy is completely down the one thing that you can do that will actually put you hundreds of thousands of dollars better off is check your super. So go and check your superannuation. Guys, it is 11% of your income that gets invested on your behalf each and every single month. Like that money, not many of us can say, 
I save 11% of my income. Mm. Well, you're actually investing it inside your super right now. And that money is your money to make your decisions about and do what, like invest in whatever you want it to. So start caring about it. Have a check. Is that super fund good? The Money Smart website and the ATO website have a free super comparison tool. So you can just sort it and pick the one that makes the most sense to you. It's so easy. And then you know what you do? You jump on MyGov and tick a box to change. People don't realize how easy this is. I promise superannuation is so much easier than you think it is. It's like logging into a social media account and checking the settings. I promise it is that easy. And then when it comes to, you know, if you wanted to make additional contributions, this always, it shouldn't, but it does, blows people's mind. Do you know how, Anita, to make an additional contribution to your super? Absolutely not. No, you just pay it just like a bill. Like you yeah. just pay it to your super And it makes no sense because obviously that makes sense, but we've never thought about it because it just feels overwhelming. But it's BPAY. You literally just put their bill of code in and flip some money off and then it's in your super. Like it's so simple if that's what you want to do. But superannuation as a tax system feels overwhelming, but it doesn't need to be. It is so easy. And I promise the second that you start to wrap your head around it, making sure that you're in the best risk profile for yourself. If you don't get it, do you know what? You're already paying super fees. Call their call center. Be like, I don't get this. Tell me about it. You know, what could I do to put my super in a better position? They will tell you and they will tell you for free because you've already paid superannuation fees. You're going to be in such a better financial position in the future if you make that decision because a lot of people that I talk to, they're in like a balanced portfolio Mm. in their super. And you are because when you filled in your little tax form to let your new employer know that you've got a super fund, they were like, oh, if you don't have the deets, do you want to just sign up for ours? And we all just do that, right? Because we're like, I can't be bothered finding my super fund deets. So whatever, I'll just put it in your fund. I'll have a new account. I'll work it out when I'm old. No worries. And then you're like, oh, it's asking me what risk profile to pick. What do I do here? And then you know I don't even you do? know what that means. No, no, no. It would have said that. And you know what? In the fine print underneath that, it would have said, it would say the balanced portfolio is the most popular option for people between the age of 20 and 45. And you go, oh, or, or I guess I just picked the balanced one then. That's most obvious. It is, isn't it? And we all do it. And then you find out that a lot of people between the age of 20 and 45 actually have if we survey them and actually test it, they actually are more growth investors. They're not balanced investors. They want their money to be exposed to shares. And if you picked that balanced portfolio, your money isn't as exposed to the share market as you probably think it is. Wow. So call them and ask because the more money you have invested and the less of it that's sitting in cash in a super fund, the more you're going to have when you retire. And that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's something you can change today very easily without spending a dollar. Wow. I can't believe how much I've learned in 45 minutes. (laughs) But I will tell you one thing. Thanks to Alana, who is my best friend, I do have an emergency fund. Get it, queen. (laughs) But don't you feel so much more empowered knowing Uh. That if something hits the fan, there's some cash there and that makes life so much easier. But emergency fund, baby, I'm there. I'm into it. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been awesome. I love it. Have the best day. Thanks for calling the Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle. You can find us on Instagram at the entertainment underscore hotline pod or visit us at chatter.com.au. The Entertainment Hotline with Anita Annabelle is a proud Chatter Podcast. Thank you.